Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life, not only life, but life from the dead, and therefore a life that has conquered death. We are grateful for this opportunity to look into the fulfilled Torah of freedom, freedom being one of the great key words in the Pauline epistles. We thank you for this opportunity, and we thank you in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Tonight I want to call this message, and I do have to have titles because that goes up on the website, tetelestai.org. That's the real one, tetelestai.org. That's the real one. The justification that is life. The justification, put it in quotes because that's really not a very good translation of the word dikaiosin, and justify is not a very good translation for dikaio, not in Romans. So sin, first point, sin was in the world before the law. We know this from Romans chapter 5 and verse 13. Remember, Paul is engaged, and we really finished the taking of the main citadel, the demolition of the main fortress of the teacher's gospel this past Sunday in our first sweep, at least, through Romans 1, 1 through 3.20. By 3.20, The whole world's mouth is shut, especially the teachers, with regard to any kind of standing before God on the basis of Torah, on the basis of law, on the basis of human deserving, on the basis of human merit. And so Paul then dives into his unchained gospel in an anticipation in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, then in fully in earnest in 5.1 and following, and we're hitting 5.12 to 21 tonight because we've shot an arrow from 3.12 where all turned aside from God at the same time and all together, and that sh- shoots an arrow all the way up to Romans 5.12 that kind of explains that, that it, all the human race that God surveyed all at once According to Psalm 14, 1 and 2, Psalm 53, 1 and 2, as God sees it, all the human race and all of its sequential generations, all in one en masse, turned aside when Adam turned aside. This sets up the Romans 5, Adam, Christ, anthropology, in which the first man and his disobedience brought the entire human race under condemnation and under slavery to sin and death. Whereas the second man, the second Adam, the final Adam, Jesus Christ, called the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5, by his obedience, he brings the entire human race into a thing called justification that is life. I'm going to explain that as we go along. It's a very important point to make and among others. But the first point, and this kind of reiterates we were, where we were on Sunday morning, sin was in the world before the law. Paul declares this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 13, and death reigned from Adam until Moses. And I add to that, through whom the law came, Romans 5.14, John 1.17. If you capitalize law, understanding it means Torah, you capitalize death, capitalize sin, and capitalize life, we actually have players in a drama. 
It's really kind of a two-act play. The act of Adam that brings all into condemnation. The act of Christ that brings all into life. For in Adam all are dying, but in Christ all will be made alive. The second point, by the law came the knowledge of sin. That's Romans 3.20. That was one of the great conclusive points Paul makes. He's saying, look, if your gospel, the teacher's gospel, is a, an eschatological justification on the day of judgment by obedience to the Torah's commands, obedience to the law's commands, then how can the law make someone righteous if by the law comes the knowledge of sin? How can that be a saving agency? So the second point is, by the law came the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20, and by the law, sin increased in Romans 5.20, Romans 5.20. So we've had to kind of skip over an entire array of verses to get from 3.20 to 5.20. What we're also going to find out is there are two ways to read Romans chapter 4. One is the way that it's read by the so-called Lutheran interpretation or the traditional contractual interpretation. And when it looks like Abraham is the paradigm for justification through meeting the condition called faith. That's what we would call, or that's what Campbell at least called, a thin reading. The thicker reading emphasizes participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by the people of God. It emphasizes Jesus Christ, not Abraham, and it emphasizes Jesus Christ's resurrection as the way that the human race receives a, again, quote, justification, which is life from the dead. That's all going to come into focus in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. What I might do is after I get done with all this concentrated teaching is go back and teach a series called Romans. Now, we've been through a lot of Romans already, but we might just go through it again sometime to iron this whole thing out. The third point, so, and I've already kind of made it, how then can the law or Torah be the means for salvation or the justification that is life? And again, life itself is a word. Zoes is how it's used, spelled in the Greek. Zoes, Z-O-E-S. That's where the lady's name Zoe comes from. Zoe, Zoes. It's actually here life from the dead. It's the very life of Jesus Christ participated in by his brethren. So how then can the law be the means for salvation or justification that is life? And life being a word that denotes liberation from enslavement to sin and death. Life by its very definition is a freedom from the enslavement to death and the enslavement to sin. To supra-human powers which enslave not only the human race but the cosmos itself. The proportionate being, the creation or the universe of proportionate being. Now, because before God invaded us with the gospel and with Christ's own life, we were dead in sins. Dead in sins is another way of illustrating the radical incapacity of humankind in Adam 
to in any way secure their salvation or by any means or by meeting any condition, including faith. We're going to, that's the, the sticking point of this whole thing. I don't think I've convinced everybody that the grace of God is unconditional, but the grace of God is unconditional. If the grace of God is unconditional, then there is no stipulation or condition presented to man upon the hearing of the gospel to secure salvation or to secure divine deliverance. None at all. This challenges greatly the motto, faith alone. It's a motto that first started with Melanchthon in the Reformation period, faith alone, as a saving agency. And we're making the case that the saving agency is the faithfulness of one man, Christ Jesus. And salvation is by the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus, And my point is, beyond what I think Campbell's point is, my point is that that salvation is strictly universal, that it must be a universal soteriological work of God. So the point Paul makes as he demolishes the fortress, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5, as we saw his strategy, how can the law, the Torah teacher, be the means for salvation If by the law comes the knowledge of sin, and by the law, sin, not righteousness, increases. So before God invaded us with the gospel, and the gospel is something that happens to you. The gospel happens to you. It's an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. It's God pleasing to reveal his son to you in your own little personal apocalypse. And as Dave said last week, that may or may not be dramatic, We're not all going to have the unhorsing event that Saul of Tarsus had on the Damascus Road. It may be a very soft whisper when we realize that we are in Christ and that we are alive in him. In the state, our previous state, we were dead in sins. And in that very state, we were made alive by a divine action rooted in Christ's event, the Christ event. By the Christ event, I mean incarnation, life of vicarious obedience, leading to obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, burial, and on the third day, resurrection from the dead, ascension, and enthronement. That's the Christ event. Salvation is a divine action rooted in the Christ event, which is why we said we are said to have been saved by grace, right? In the same verse in Ephesians, make that Laodiceans. Either way is okay. We've been doing Ephesians so long, I'm not going to condemn myself for using Ephesians, nor will I pull you up short and rebuke you and reprove you and take you into the waiting room if you say Ephesians. But in Ephesians 2.5, When we were dead in trespasses and sin, God's made us alive in Christ. Then hyphen, for by grace you were saved. The grace is unconditional. And that's where the the catch is. That's where the rub is, to use Shakespearean language. I, there's the rub. There it is. There's the thing that rubs people the wrong way sometimes. That the gospel is an unconditional soteriology, that the gospel is a Christological salvation, that the gospel is a Trinitarian work, and that man is the total recipient of it, the passive recipient of it, in every single case. And all men are.
And so we are saved by grace through the faithfulness of Christ, that is, his faithful death and resurrection, leading to his enthronement. At the heart of Paul's corpus of letters, the whole body of letters, is an enthroned lamb. Just as in Revelation, there is an enthroned lamb at its heart. Remember, we have, I think, an advantage coming at Paul from Revelation. Revelation has at its heart an enthroned lamb. Revelation, as we have seen, is strongly influenced by the Pauline epistles. Paul, more subtly, but nevertheless, just as really, places the enthroned, crucified lamb at the heart of his epistles, which I think altogether form an apocalypse, a divine revelation of Jesus Christ as an all-saving Savior. At the heart of Paul's corpus of letters, then, is a lamb enthroned. As 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8 says, our paschal lamb has been Killed, And in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, this Christ, this lamb, will reign and rules now until all his enemies are made a footrest for his feet, the last enemy being death itself. Death has been defeated through Jesus Christ, and death has given up its first victim in Jesus Christ, indicating, because he is the inclusive representative for all humanity and all created reality, that all of humanity and all of created reality will also be coughed up by death, and he will have to give up all his victims, and that'll be at the moment when death is totally vanquished, and that's what Revelation 20 calls it, 14 and 15. Death and Hades are the two names that are thrown into the lake of fire, the second death, the second death being the death of death, brought to you by Jesus Christ, who died and in his resurrection came out with life from death, life grasped from death. So as in John's gospel, this lamb is the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, the whole cosmos. In doing so, he liberated the cosmos itself the universe of proportionate created being from slavery to sin and to death. This is the gospel of God about his son. This is the gospel proclaimed by Paul. This is the gospel that I gladly and unashamedly proclaim to you in the 21st century. The fourth point is what the law could not do in that it was rendered weak, totally impotent through the flesh or the Adamic ontology. God did directly by sending his son, Romans 8, 2, and 3. That's at the heart of the unchained gospel. What the Torah could not do, because it addressed the weakness called flesh or the Adamic ontology and man's incapacity to fulfill Torah, what the law could not do, God did. That's the heart of the gospel. God does it. It's God's activity. The task of the church is to recognize God's activity. It's not to get busy in human activity. It's to recognize divine activity and follow in the wake of that divine activity. For it is God in us both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. It isn't us dreaming up ways to serve him in the energy of the flesh. Now we're going to back up into Romans 5.12 again. 
hit this paragraph 512 to 21, which is in the heart. It's in the heartland of Paul's gospel, we could say. And we're dealing with the law of similarity and dissimilarity, with the emphasis on dissimilarity, and also an argument called a fortiori, argument from strength, a fortiori, otherwise known as the much more argument. If I can demonstrate to you that I can do 50 push-ups up here, then I can easily declare that I can do 15 push-ups. That's a fortiori, an argument from strength. And I used to say 50, maybe now I'd say 30. Uh, if I could demonstrate that I could do 30 push-ups, because I haven't been doing too many lately. Except those Navy SEAL ones, Ty, I do those still. You know, the ones with the wheels, those are good. Romans 5.12, because of this, just as by one man, this is my translation from the Greek, sin, capital S-I-N, entered into the world. Just as by one man sin entered the world. Why? Because in Romans 3.20, all turned away at the same time when Adam turned away. Because of this, just as by one man, here's Paul's anthropology, Adam, sin entered into the world and through sin, death, capital D-E-A-T-H, and in this way death passed into the whole human race in whom Adam We'd put that in brackets, in whom, who all sinned in Adam, in other words. That's the sense of this. And in this way, death passed into the whole human race. In Adam, all sinned. For sin was in the world before the law. I already hit that point earlier. Sin was in the world before the law. But sin is not charged to one's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death ruled as king reigned as king from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam. There's the law of dissimilarity. Even over those, those that part of humanity whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam. Our sins are not like the transgressions of Adam, generally speaking, because his transgression was a direct violation of a direct command from God. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. A direct violation of that command. We sin without being having it be a violation of a, a divine command. Nevertheless, it's still sin. Even those whose sin is not like the transgression of Adam, who is a prototype, and this is where it gets good again in verse 14, who is a prototype of the coming one. This is a title, the coming one, as we have seen in the fourth G and in Revelation for Messiah. He is a prototype for the coming one. He's a prototype under the law of dissimilarity, as well as in the law of similarity. There is a law of similarity and dissimilarity. Watch how it unfolds. But the transgression, that's of Adam, which is a violation of direct divine command, is not like the law of dissimilarity is in function here. It's meaning it's all out of proportion to the free gift. It's all out of proportion to the free gift. And this is why. For as through the one man's transgression, the many, there's our word hoi polloi, and we've shown, I think back even in Revelation, we showed pretty clearly that this hoi polloi, is actually a word for 
all. It's equivalent. Many equals all. In this calculus here that we're working with, this theological calculus, many equals all. So in verse 15, the transgression of Adam is not like the free gift. Free gift here indicates a gift that is without condition by the very name of that word, free gift. It is not like the free gift. For as through the one man's transgression, the many died. Hoi polloi. Many equals all, though, because in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul says, as in Adam, all die. So the many here, hoi polloi, equals or has a dynamic equivalency with all. And Paul's going to play on this very strongly. And I think that it's one of the strongest arguments for the universal saving significance of the second Adam. Now, we're engaging with the text here. So this isn't just a simple message where I tell you a couple things and you get them and you grasp them and you go home and you say, I know more now. This is engagement with the text where a little emerges here, a little emerges there. Later on in the weeks to come, a little emerges. And then finally, you start getting these huge thoughts from the Holy Spirit, which we like to call insights. And that's God continuing, continuing in an apocalyptic way to reveal his son to you and the salvific action of God in his son and in his spirit also in the spirit again verse 15 but the transgression of Adam is all out of proportion it's not like the free gift for as through the one man's transgression the many that's all died much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflowed much more to the many, that's tus palus, same thing as hoi polloi, tus palus, the many, verse 15, but again, the transgression, and I translated it this way, the transgression committed by Adam is not like the gift bestowed, the transgression that was committed is not like the gift that is bestowed, For since by the transgression of the one man, the many died. Much more by the grace of God. Notice that word much more. That's a fortiori. Much more by the grace of God and the free gift that I would translate. In fact, that word free as unconditional. Undeserved favor, unmerited favor are two definitions given for grace, but they're And they are, as far as they go, they're good definitions, but they're insufficient. Grace is unconditional. It certainly has nothing to do with earning or deserving, but it's also without condition, including the condition of faith on the part of the sinful person. This is where the rub is. This is where it's difficult. This is where I don't expect you to agree with me. I'm not up here telling you that you have to agree with everything I say, but I am saying let's think about it, reflect upon it, and let's reflect upon, I think, the flawed gospel that we once may have been committed to, a gospel that's contractual, a gospel that has stipulation and condition for for appropriation of salvation. This is a time of reflection to come to asking the question, is that really the gospel? Is it really so? On sit, is it so? 
And I've come to the conclusion pretty much that no, it is not so. The Lutheran, as it's called, it's unfair to Luther, it shouldn't be called Lutheran, but the, the so-called Reformation construal of the gospel is, I think, been tried and found wanting. What God is doing today is revealing again the gospel as an apocalypse of his son, as a revelation of his son in his all-saving significance. So 15 again, the transgression committed is not like the gift bestowed. For since by the transgression of the one man, the many died, much more by the grace of God and the free gift arising from the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. The grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, also is a phrase that contemplates the Christ event. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he made himself poor, And the ultimate poverty is the poverty of a crucified man, that we might be made rich in him. He became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, or the evidence of the saving act of God in him, as we could say it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, along with 2 Corinthians 8.9. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of the one man, is the same as the faithfulness of the one Messiah. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same as the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ or of his obedience to the Father's loving intent to save humanity to the extent of death on the cross. His obedience was the obedience to the Father's intent who loved the world so much. The Father's intent to save the world. Jesus obeyed that Father's, the Father's loving intent and gave himself for us. He loved us and gave himself for us. So the grace of the one man, verse 15, but the transgression committed by Adam is not like the gift bestowed by Christ. For since by the transgression of the one man, that's Adam, the first, the many died, much more by the grace of God and the free, unconditional gift arising from the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflows to the many. Now watch how this plays into all, this many meaning all. But we want to show you again that one man means a representative man. It means an inclusive representative of all mankind. Because in Adam all die. So Adam is a representative, an inclusive representative of all mankind. So when we say the one man, we're talking about an inclusive representative of humankind. When we talk about the second one man, we're talking about a new sheriff in town. We're talking about a new inclusive representative of all mankind in whom all mankind are made alive. This goes light years beyond the former interpretation of Romans, which is a prospective view where you begin by contemplating the universe, then you go to positive signals, then you go to despair because you can't fulfill the law, even if you're a pagan who doesn't know the law, and then you get to despair and then you try to get yourself out of it and you freak out and then somebody gives you the gospel, God lowers the bar and he says all you got to do is believe instead of doing obedience to the law and therefore it's faith alone. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And I'm showing you that by engagement with the texts. And the free gift 
There it is again, verse 16. The free gift is not like the one man's sin. It's all out of proportion with it. In other words, grace can't even be defined by any kind of overflowing essence in the human understanding. It's so overwhelming, it's, it's, it's indescribable. And the free gift is not like the one man's sin. Because from the one man's sin came judgment unto condemnation. But the gift bestowed came after many transgressions and brought deliverance, divine deliverance. Justification should better be translated as divine deliverance because the righteousness of God in Romans 117 is a phrase lifted from Psalm 98 in which the righteousness of God speaks of his saving act toward his people and his domain. His people is humanity. His domain is all creation. And it's the right thing for the king to do to act in a way that rescues his constituents, his people, his subjects. God has acted in a right way to rescue his subjects, all of humanity, and to rescue his domain, all of creation. That's the righteousness of God. It's being revealed. It's being apocalyptically revealed. Unveiled is too weak. I'm not going to use that word for apocalypto. It's being revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. From the faithfulness of God demonstrated in Christ to the faithfulness of Christ continuing in the church. That's the first time I've said it as interpretive of Romans 117 tonight, and that's my interpretation up to now. From the faithfulness of God demonstrated in Christ to the faithfulness of Christ that continues in the church. I was crucified with Christ, said Paul. Nevertheless, I live. And yet it is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. To live by the faithfulness of the Son of God must mean that that fidelity continues in the corporate Christ called the body of Christ. This salvation is participative with Christ. It's pneumatological, energized and empowered all the way by the Holy Spirit. The teacher's gospel does two things. It sidelines Jesus Christ in its soteriology, and it sidelines the Holy Spirit in its ethics. Ethics is extremely important in the gospel. It's not extremely important in the so-called Lutheran contractual traditional gospel in which you're justified, but you're still sinful, and you keep sinning and rebounding and sinning and rebounding and sinning and rebounding. Hopefully someday you'll catch up and be better. That's not the Christian life. That's a confessional piety that's been tried and found wanting. It doesn't have anything to do with a pneumatological participative ethic, which is Christians walking in participation with two divine missions. The divine mission of the Son that's extended into this age and the divine mission of the Holy Spirit. So ethics is a matter of walking in the Spirit. That's all coming up in Romans 6. In fact, I might even take you there tomorrow night, Lord willing, in Romans 6 to show you what ethics means in Paul's gospel. So the free gift is not like the one man's sin because the one man's sin came by the one man's sin, judgment 
unto condemnation. But the gift bestowed came after many transgressions and brought liberation, deliverance, rescue. So the question is, to whom did the condemnation come from Adam's one sin? The answer, to all the human race through Adam. The question then, to whom does the deliverance from condemnation come in the form of a free and unconditional gift? And the answer is, through Jesus Christ, the one man, the one inclusive representative, truly human being. Verse 17, for since by the trans, by the one transgression, death ruled, death is pictured here as a personified ruling suprahuman power, a power from which human beings cannot extract themselves. Death ruled through the one, that's the one man Adam again, much more will those who receive the surplus of grace which is amazing here because how many sins were committed in the human race after Adam's fall to the time of the cross? How many sins do you think might have been committed? And how many sins do you think might have been committed since Christ's resurrection up to our present time? How many sins do you think were committed today? And so what Paul is saying is, one man's sin led to condemnation, but all out of proportion to that, after the commission of hundreds of trillions of sins, came the free gift. He's going after something that's going to be controversial, and then he's going to answer the controversy. He's saying where sin abounded, God's grace abounded much more. And therefore, that invites the charge of this teacher, a charge that I've been dealing with since 1978 that the gospel you preach offers a license to sin. It says in effect, well, if grace abounds when sin abounds, let's let sin abound in our life so that more grace can come. That's what we're saying. No, it's not what we're saying at all. And to make that kind of conclusion is to do what a lot of the media are doing today, which are, a bunch of panic-stricken sissies about everything that happens. I don't want to be a panic-stricken sissy and a beta or gamma male. I'd rather be a, a man in Christ. It's not too freaked out about anything at all right now. So, just have to brush away the world once in a while. It's just a, there it goes. So, pl- please notice here. Since by the transgression... One man's transgression, death ruled through the one man for all. You see, all turned aside from God who gave them creation, who called them into existence. They all turned aside. So death ruled through the one man, Adam. Much more will those who receive the surplus of grace and the free gift of deliverance reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Please notice that death ruled as a real power over the whole of the cosmos and the whole of the human race, beginning with Adam's single transgression. But now, humans in Christ, being liberated from the reign of death, are ruling in life through and in the one man, Jesus Christ. So this is a reality that pertains since the Christ event. This is a reality that pertains in the world, in the cosmos, since the Christ event. 
That's why we ought to set our minds on things above where Christ is enthroned at the right hand of God. Our occupation should be there because that's where reality is. Reality is Jesus enthroned, not death enthroned, not sin enthroned. This is a reality that pertains since the Christ event or the action of God in Christ in our behalf and to the infinite benefit, not only of all the human race, but of all of creation, what Bernard Lonergan called the universe of proportionate being. Proportionate being in that there is a kind of a hierarchy of being from plants to principalities. So then, all the cosmos, and that was understood in Judaism even before Christ came, all the cosmos is the inheritance of Abraham's seed in Romans 4.13. That which he was to receive is not just a tract of land in the Middle East, in which people are bleeding and dying all over the place to claim. He's talking about the whole of the cosmos. Now, I want to insert here that Jesus Christ is the same as the Son of Man. It's been commented upon that Paul never used the word Son of Man that's used 52 times in the Synoptic Gospel, or the Gospels for Jesus Christ, many, mainly him speaking of himself, and relating him to that figure in Daniel who is called one like a Son of Man. And even though Paul does not use the term the Son of Man, I believe that he is referring to him deliberately by calling him the man, Christ Jesus. So I think he does refer to Jesus Christ obliquely as being the figure in Daniel 7. The reasons for this are first, because the Son of Man is portrayed in Daniel 7 both as a single figure and as an inclusive figure an all-inclusive figure of mankind. And second, therefore he is a singular figure and a corporate figure, much as Christ is shown to be in all of Paul's epistles. The church being the body of Christ or the corporate Christ. So Christ in Paul's understanding is a singular individual, the one man Christ Jesus, but Christ is also a corporate entity which we so far call the proleptic people called the church, which one day will be all of humanity in residence with God in Revelation 21.3. Second reason why I think Paul was had in his, at least in the back of his mind, the son of man from Daniel 7, is because Paul's repeated use of the one man Jesus Christ also has strong echoes of the term as does the title, The Man Christ Jesus, in 1 Timothy 2.5, and the second man in 1 Corinthians 15.45-49, as Jesus is also called, or the last Adam, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5.5. 5. So the last Adam, the second man, the man Christ Jesus, equals one like a son of man, who comes before the throne of the Ancient of Days to receive an everlasting and indestructible kingdom which he shares with the Holy Ones, the saints who participate in him. So that's, I, that's just a side note, but I just had to say it. Now we hit the heart of the matter, the heart of the unchained gospel in 5.18. We'll hit it again and again, but this is just another shot at it. Romans 5.18, therefore... Accordingly, 
Just as it was through one man's transgression that condemnation came to, this time he says, all human beings. All human beings. So before he said the many, now he says all, so it must be that the many equals the all, because he had just said that through one man's sin, condemnation came to the many. Now he's saying, as he restates it with slightly different vocabulary, that the one man's sin brought all of humankind. So many equals all. I demonstrated this before, and in case you forgot, Mark 10, 45 brought about again in Matthew 20, 28, the son of man, Jesus said, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. But was that stating that he was giving his life for all? Possibly because 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and humankind, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Contrary to what failed scholarship of the 20th century says, Jesus and Paul didn't disagree. Many equals all. So look at it. Verse 18 really is, so far in all of Romans, that to me is the heart of the matter. The climax of the historical look at Israel in Romans 11.32 is the climax of the matter with regard to unbelieving Israel. God sums up all of humankind under disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. But in 5.18, therefore, accordingly, that is, according as this argument proceeds, just as it was through one man's transgression that condemnation came to all human beings, so through the one man's righteous saving act came the deliverance which is life for all human beings. says a lot to me. Maybe it doesn't say a lot to you. I don't know. Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience, there's another word, parakoes, hearing alongside, the disobedience of a command, the command intent of God, just as through disobedience, parakoes, of the one, the many were constituted as sinners, hamartoloi, here's Paul's hamartiology. So also, now it says the many are constituted sinners by the one man's disobedience. It does not say that people became sinners by looking into the sky and counting the stars and looking up there and then saying, Okay, now I have the knowledge of God, epinosis knowledge, as Romans 119 to 21 says, and I choose not to keep that knowledge in my mind. I'm going to turn away from it. And so one by one, one, tribe by tribe, people go away from God. No, it says by one man's disobedience, the many, the whole of the human race was considered sinners. God didn't just look down on the human race and wait for you to fall and say there's another sinner. That's what Paul's teaching here against the teacher's gospel. So also by the obedience of the one, the many reconstituted as righteous. Now look at verse 19. He'll say it again. For just as through the disobedience, again, parakoes of the one man, the many were constituted as sinners. So also by the obedience, hupakoe, that's Jesus' obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion by which he was also raised from the dead. 
the obedience of the one, the many, are reconstituted as righteous, or I think better we would say are rightly delivered in the sense of being the objects of the divine king's rescue mission, which is the right thing to do for a sovereign for his people. So, dear king, what have you done for your people? I have rescued them. I have preserved and delivered them all. Then you did right. That's the righteousness of the king. So I want to do this in in closing. It should be particularly emphasized that in Romans 5.18, when the scripture says, so through the one man's righteous or saving act came the deliverance which is life, or the justification, bad translation, it should be deliverance, the deliverance which is life, This takes that word justify out of the forensic or purely legal realm. It takes it out of being an imputation of legal righteousness, putting you under a legal fiction that you're not righteous, but you have righteousness, and therefore you're going to continue in sinfulness for an infinite amount of time until you rebound enough times that you're sick of the sin and you somehow get better in your flesh. That's not the Christian way of life. Never has been never will be it's not a matter of mechanics as much as it is a matter of mystery here and mystery by mystery i mean participation in christ's own life and empowerment by christ's own spirit we have then a justification which is life here's the phrase this is the last thing i should hit tonight because this is one of those incremental things where you got to build and build and build the phrase here used in the greek is ace, E-I-S, and then dikaiosin, D-I-K, dikaiosin, D-I-K-A-I-O-S-I-N, dikaiosin, usually translated as justification. But ice dikaiosin, usually translated as resulting in the justification of life. Here we have, however, the accusative use of the noun dikaiosin, often translated justification, but better constituted as deliverance, followed by the genitive of the noun, zoes. And zoes is a word for life, as we've said before, zoes. Zoes is this, looks like this by transliteration. Zoes. The justification of life. Now that's sort of like the faithfulness of Christ. Does the faithfulness belong to Christ? Is it Christ's faithfulness? Is it your faith in Christ? We've shown that it's the genitive is the faithfulness of Christ. This phrase, dikaiosin, zoes, the word zoes is also in a genitive. And so we would have to translate this as resulting in the deliverance that is life. This justification, as it's called, is actually the gift of life to you that liberates you from the slavery to sin and death. It's the life of the Messiah himself into which you now have been brought, in which you now participate, made alive together with Christ. Sun zoio poeo. Sun zoio poeo. Ephesians 2.5. So we, would trans- we should translate this 
In Romans 5.18 then, the key verse that I'm hitting tonight. Therefore, accordingly, just as it was through one man's transgression that condemnation came to all human beings, so through the one man's righteous saving act came the deliverance which is life to all human beings for all the human race. So justification, if you want to still use that word, is life. It's the gift of life. We may even say that the justification consists of life. Not just life, life from the dead. As the gift from God to us through the fidelity of the Messiah, which resulted in his resurrection from the dead. I'll say that again. The gift of life is life from the dead as the gift from God to us through the fidelity of the Messiah, which resulted in his death, which resulted in life from the dead called resurrection, a gift that he shares with us. This takes the word dikaiosin away from a merely forensic or legal sense and therefore does away with the whole concept of imputation which I was once committed to because that's the system I grew up in and that's what I saw. I said what I saw. I preached what I, what I really thought was in the scripture. But now, from a higher vantage point, a different horizon has arisen. And it's very freeing. It's very liberating. It kind of makes you just flex your muscles a little bit and it rips off all the cords that the Philistines put around you, like Samson did. So this takes the word, and that includes the rigid constraints of humanly conceived affiliations, sometimes called denominations, sometimes called whatever, affiliations, sometimes called voluntary affiliation, until you volunteer not to be part of it, and then you're a heretic and an evil SOB, and the object of rap sessions from here to eternity. Now, this takes away then dikaiosin from a nice, a mere forensic or legal sense and describes it rather as the very life that frees us from enslavement to death. The gift of life means freedom and liberation from the slavery to death. That's what justification really is. It's the life of Jesus Christ participated in by the church at first, as the proleptic community, then all mankind. So the justification, in quotes, itself is life. We could even say the deliverance that is life, or life from the dead. What's more, this agrees with Paul's assessment of the saints in Laodicea, in Ephesians 2.5, that while dead in sins, dead is the best word you can use for radical human incapacity. They were made alive with Christ, and that was followed immediately by what Paul said. You were made alive together with Christ, and by that I mean by grace you were saved. Made alive with Christ, and by that I mean by grace you were saved. The grace is unconditional. We have to now extend or improve the definition of grace from what we understood at once as unmerited favor and undeserved favor to unconditional, sheer divine grace. Unconditional grace. Unconditional 
favor shown to mankind through Jesus Christ. Justification is that of life. So again, we must say that this justification actually consists of life from the dead as the gift from God to us through the fidelity of the Messiah, which resulted in his resurrection from the dead, for he was handed over for our sins and resurrected for our justification or our gracious deliverance. So in Romans 5.1, therefore being justified or delivered, liberated, freed by the faithfulness of Messiah, we have peace, messianic salvation with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace in Paul's gospel is unconditional. That's the sticking point so far. That's been the sticking point which has caused people to leave this assembly. And that's not my business. I don't care about that. In other words, you have to make your own decision. I'm not here to hold you here. If I ever put you under a legalistic constraint, I hope you never come again. I'm not here for that. I'm not here even to convince you. God will convince you of this. I'm convinced, says Philippians 3.15. But this is the sticking point because people really honestly want to hold on. And there's nothing wrong with this. It's a kind of a human thing to the condition by which they appropriated salvation, even if it's faith alone, even if it's faith alone, it's something that belongs to me. Grace in Paul's gospel is unconditional, but in the traditional contractual gospel, grace is unmerited, but not unconditional. It's unmerited, but it's not unconditional to be justified. However, under Paul's gospel is to be made alive with Christ's own life, which is life from the dead, which is life that has conquered death. It's an extraordinary new kind of life. It's called the newness of life in Romans 7, 6. This also squares perfectly with 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where we find this declaration for just as in Adam all die, the present active indicative Third person plural, aposnesco, means all are dying. You can experientially, empirically view it. It's called obituaries. It's in the paper. And even when you don't have the funnies, you have the obits. The obits are always in the paper. My life began with an obituary. So did yours. For you died, and here's your eulogy. Now your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. That doesn't give death much credit, does it? I could go on and on, but I shouldn't. So I'll stop right now. Father, we thank you for the justification, which is life. Because your righteousness is your saving act toward your creation through your son. Our justification is the gift of life from the dead which we have received and which one day all humanity will receive. We can say with Paul then, with unqualified assurance, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is in total concord with the meaning 
of Dikaiosune in Romans 117.